When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Smattering. Jason Hall here. We are continuing our series on how we invest. This is episode two. If you haven't already listened to episode one, where Jeff and I talked about how to get ideas for stocks, I suggest you go back to that episode and listen to that one first and then listen to this one next. Uh, Jeff Santoro, voice of the people. Hey, buddy. Hey, man. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm really glad we're doing this series. Um, I'm particularly compelled to talk about, about this one because I think this is one of the things where people may start making mistakes. But before we do that, let's do our usual bit of house, um, housekeeping here. How do people find us? People can find us uh, a couple different ways. If you're on Twitter, we are at Smattering Show. Um, if you're more of an email fan, you can reach us at thesmatteringshow at gmail.com. Um, and we have a YouTube channel that for now, if you either search this mattering on YouTube or go to our Twitter, you can get a link to it. Um, but we, we, we would love comments and, and there'll be a link recommend- in the show notes too, right here in your, yes. in your podcast app. Yeah. Yeah. The there's, there's a link to all this stuff now in the, in the episode, uh, not in the episode descriptions, but in the podcast description. So it's easy to find. Um, but we're looking for feedback. We're looking for ideas. We're looking for, um, uh, ratings and and spreading the word, telling people about the shows and the, the show and the YouTube channel, so that we can uh, get a bigger audience. Uh, one thing too, I want to mention, Jeff, um, that we've started doing the videos on YouTube. We're trying to keep them five, six minutes in length. When we run those as episodes on the podcast, we're running they're longer, right? There, you get a little bit more. Um, so that's one thing that we're trying to do to share with our pod- podcast listeners is you get a longer episode than the videos. We just kind of focus on the core of the video. So, all right. So with that out of the way, let's, let's talk about what to buy, how to buy it, that how to, how we invest process. So Jeff, I want, I want you to kind of kick this off with what does that mean? What are we, what are we saying here? So in the, in the first episode in this series, we talked a lot about where to find ideas and, and how to, how to find ideas and how to be discerning about what's out there. And so when we were thinking through this, we were talking about, let's follow the whole process through, right? So the next thing you'd want to do once you have a bunch of ideas, maybe you had put together a watch list. Now you got to decide, all right, here's a bunch of companies I'm interested in and I like, and now I got to buy them. So that brings up a whole nother bunch of questions. What do I buy? In what order do I buy them? How much do I buy? And what kind of an account do I buy? We're not going to get into all of those things. Um, because I think it, that could be another two or three episodes on its own. But we're gonna we're gonna talk through how each of us decides to like what each of our processes are, and then we're gonna at the end talk about three things that we think no matter what your process is, you should do. Because um, we, you know, in the spirit of how this whole podcast um, came about, we want to ask the questions and, and give an answer, but not give the answer, right? So. Yeah. Um, that's sort of like what, what we're going to try to accomplish in this one. So th- what I do is I, I'm a continual buyer of stocks. I've decided that 
my goal is to, for as long as I'm employed and making money, devote a certain amount, a certain percentage of my pay to buying individual stocks separate from what I'm devoting some of my pay to um, in my retirement account, my, my 403B, which is just in index funds. So I sort of have two big buckets of buying. One is just automated out of my paycheck straight into an index fund. I don't ever have to think about it. And one is me actively making a decision, in my case, weekly on what I want to buy. Um, I do it weekly simply because I think it's fun. <laughs> so it gives me something to do every every week. Um, but it's essentially a dollar amount I've decided that I can afford to do this with, and I just spread it out over the month. It's, it's pretty simple. Let me, let me jump in for a second here, Jeff, because I think I want to kind of bridge a gap for sure. anybody that's listening, right? So in the first episode, we talked about how to get ideas, and now we're talking about our kind of framework or process for how, how you invest. And yes, we're skipping a gigantic step in the process, and that's evaluating the individual companies. We're going to talk about that at some point down the road, but I want to, I want to point out that we are intentionally kind of skipping over that because... There's a lot of factors that are going to come into play, and there's different things that you'll be evaluating for when determining which companies that you want to buy. We don't want to get into the weeds on that. We're talking about the process. So go ahead, Jeff. Right. No, I, that's a good clarification because we are, we are skipping that part. I, I'm just thinking of like, okay, once you've done that work, what, what do you do next? And I, I know as a new investor, this was something that I constantly questioned. Um, so I, that was why I think I was drawn to talking through it in this way. So... I want a company I'm interested in that I'm going to actually want to root for. And this is my way of thinking about making, you know, the David Gardner from The Motley Fool is famous for saying, make your portfolio reflect your best vision for the future. And to me, that means I want to root for the companies I own. So I'm not going to buy a company that I can't root for, right? And everyone has to make a decision about what that means for them. There's certain ones in my mind that I'm just never going to buy. I don't care if they're the world's best investment. I can't root for them. I'm not going to buy them. That's a personal thing. I know, I know some really successful investors that have a very different approach that are uh, passionless almost when it comes to it. I mean, they are strictly evaluating a company's generation of cash flows, cash flows per share, and their ability to grow that cash flow per share over time. And what are they paying for that today? And, and, and can, will, you know, can that generate a return? And you know, if it's a legal business... They're, they're, they're interested in buying it if it meets those thresholds. That doesn't work for everybody, Jeff. So you're, you're, that, that's important, that you find the flavor that fits you. Right. And I, I don't have any problem with people who view it that way. You know, like I know for a fact by not choosing to buy certain companies, I'm leaving gains on the table. I know that. Um, but it's just the way that I need to think about it. And then so I have a spreadsheet where I keep track of a bunch of metrics for uh, the same for every company or most companies, things like revenue growth, gross profit, operating income, profitability, cash flow. Now, these are all things that if you're brand new, may not you may not know about, um, but they're all easily found on free websites where you can get financial results. And they're also easily found in the actual financial statements that companies have to report. Right. Um, learn, how, learn how to read a balance sheet. Learn how to read an operating statement. And the company's 10Q and, and 10K. Learn how to read those. If you can read yeah. it on one company, you can read it on any company. And honestly, if you're interested in learning how to do all that, it, it's, it's honestly as simple as Google how to read and type in financial statements, and you'll find a bunch of really good articles on how to do all that. We don't need to cover that here because it's readily available and easy to understand. 
Um, and then the next thing I do is I find company-specific metrics that are not going to be the same for every company. So for example, if it's a subscription-based consumer-facing product, I want to look at how many subscription, how many subscribers they have, and how that's growing over time, um, or Retention how much of subscribers, all that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. See, these are sometimes called key, yeah, key performance indicators. You'll hear them referred to as um, KPIs. KPIs. Yep. Um, and honestly, if you just open up a press release for any company from when they released earnings, what they put at the top, what they list as bullet points, what they report on every single quarter in the same way in the same order is a pretty good indication of what they think is important. And I, that's sort of what I base this on. Um, and then certainly what they want you to think is important, right? Right. Right. Yeah. But I think that's important. Like, you know, you could go crazy thinking about what analysts are expecting from companies. I like to know what the company expects from the company. Far more valuable. Right. So if management says we expect subscriber growth to be X and then it's not, that's a, you know, a big indicator to me about the business, but also about management's ability to predict what the business can do. So the last thing I do, once I have like sort of this super nerdy spreadsheet that I keep and all this data is I look at it, obviously, because that's why I made it. And I look for trends and if things are heading in the right direction. Um, and then I'll, I sort of ask myself, that's what, at that point, I ask myself the big picture questions, which are, um, you know, do they have a competitive advantage both as a company, but then also are they in an industry or a sector that has growth potential ahead of it? And then the last thing is I actually make the purchase. And for me, that is a small sort of first first bite at the apple, so to speak. Um, and then I track, which we're going to talk about how to track your investments in our next episode. But then I track over time and I decide by doing that when to add, um, how much to add, and you know, I don't want to get too much into that part, but that's that's what I'll uh, that's what we'll talk about next time. But what I find is more often than not, when I go through this process of like looking at my watch list, kind of deciding if I want to buy something new, I end up buying more of stuff I already own. And I think that that is a outcome of this process that I everyone should know is fine. You know, uh, I think it was a uh, was it Peter Lynch that's famous for saying sometimes the best stock you you can buy is one you already own or one that's already in your portfolio, right? Um, so that's just really quick kind of my process. So it's like from the watch list, do I care about it? I collect all this data. I look at the big ideas. I take small positions that I add to over time. Um, and then again, there's a big tracking component to all that, but we'll get into that next time. Yeah. So, so my process, Jeff, is, is um, one could almost say it's a little more binary. I'm kind of, I can be a little manic sometimes. Um, well, I'll, I'll go an extended period of time and I won't buy um, and then I will go on like a six-week bender <laughs> where I'm buying something every week, right? Um, and one of the things I've come to realize is I think for most investors, by and large, particularly people who are just getting started, is you need to have some sort of a framework, right? It doesn't necessarily need to be hard and fast rules, but a good investing, a, a good framework for how you buy, when you buy, can really keep you from developing some really bad, like wealth destroying habits over time. And I think that's the most important thing. And it also gives you some ability to evolve, right? Because I can promise you, I don't care, you could spend 10 years studying the markets. um, But until you actually start investing your own capital and risking your own wealth in the markets, 
you don't know how you're going to behave. So, so a good framework can help you manage your behavior as you develop some proficiency, right? And also separating proficiency from luck. And luck is, can be good and luck can be bad. For example, I'm going to use Shopify again, right? Somebody that bought Shopify within the first year of its IPO has made a shitload of money, Jeff. Somebody that bought out, um, Shopify a year ago has lost a shitload of money, yep. right? And that's, that's luck. That's really largely, I mean, yes, you could have looked at the valuation a year ago and been like, wow, this is crazy expensive. This, is, this is, doesn't make sense to buy. Uh, but I, again, again, the luck is the, the, the reality that with stocks, in the short term, it's all luck, right? Because you don't know what the market is going to do. You don't know what the hundreds of millions of other participants in the markets are going to do. You don't know what macro factors are going to affect markets. Um, you just, you don't know, right? You don't know all of those things that you can't know in the short term. So it's all luck, right? But over the long term, you know, the patient investor is rewarded, right? Because the quality of the company is going to, and its ability to grow its earnings over time is going to the, the, the market's going to measure it by that, right? And it's going to reset the threshold, that baseline, um, every time the company reports earnings and it builds that track record over time, right? So, so again, the, the point is that by having some sort of a framework and then evolving your framework over time, I think is a really healthy way to do it. And that's certainly what I have, have done. And here are a couple of like guidelines that I have. Number one, I try to cap the amount of cash that I have inside my portfolio, inside retirement accounts, taxable accounts, all the actual vehicles that I invest into stocks, I try to cap my cash at around 7 or 8%, right? That's like the most cash I ever really want to have. So I feel like any more than that, and the reality is like inflationary impacts on driving the spending power of that cash down versus the compounding power of the markets over time, too much cash doesn't make sense when I'm in my 40s and I'm going to be investing for another, hopefully, 50 years. When you say, now, when you say cash in your portfolio as a percentage, is that percentage of the value of your portfolio? Yes. Yes. Okay. So um, if it's a $100,000 portfolio, I wouldn't want to have more than about seven or $8,000 in cash at any one given time. Again, that's me. As I get older, that number's probably going to get bigger because, again, cash is going to protect in the short term against being unlucky, right, with the market's volatility. And as I get closer to needing that cash to pay for things in the real world, right? So, but for now, I don't want to have more than that. But I want to have that much because what I've learned is that for me, if I have that much cash, it gives me something to do when we do see market downturns, right? Something like every year, we're going to get a 10% downturn on average, you know, one or two. We're going to get, we might go three years and not get none. And then we might, you know, like go with what we've had since 2020, where we see two market sell-offs more than 20%. And we normally get like one of those every, you know, eight or 10 years. So too much cash is harmful. Enough cash to like to optimize yourself is important. Jeff, like for you, you invest all the time. So for you, like obviously not having a ton of cash in your portfolio is optimal for you. Yeah, and, and that's like what's interesting. That's what's interesting about our the difference way the different ways you and I invest is that I I keep almost no cash in my investing portfolio. Now I have a whole, I have a like a emergency fund of cash like separate from my investments. But I'm glad you brought that up because we're not. I'm not even that cash 
doesn't right. exist in this conversation. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you're talking separate. I understand that. Yeah, yeah. This is all dry powder inside investing accounts. I want to be sure right. that's clear for anybody listening. But see, I think this is a good pause point because I think that's partially the difference between someone who's been investing in individual stocks for decades versus someone who just started a few years ago, right? So I don't know, maybe 10 years from now, I'll be I'll think of it differently and I won't want to be so regular every every week and I'll think to myself more about building up a cash position when things are overvalued and then spending it when the market hits a downslide. Um, and I think it, it's just important to point out that like the way you invest today doesn't necessarily have to be the way you invest a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. I, I expect what I explained on this podcast to change yeah. um, over time as I have more experience and I'm older and my, my position in life changes and all that kind of stuff. Well, I think it's important, Jeff, because you and I were similar ages. We're similar, like situations in life, right? All of those factors. And the way that we actually deploy our capital and invest is, is like you said, it's very, very different. I think we're both going to have plenty of, of financial success. I think that's the important thing is that it doesn't even necessarily have to deal with where you are in your investing career. It's finding something to help you optimize for yourself as much as having an optimal portfolio. One of the things I do want to hit on is why do I have like that, that, the other part of why I have that like maximum amount of cash, I could fall in love with cash fast and create a situation where I am talking myself into waiting for the next downturn. It's six months from now, stocks are going to be cheaper. I'm going to wait, Jeff. I'm, now's not the time. I'm going, to, I'm going to get a better price, right? I know I could talk myself into doing that. So by kind of having that max threshold, it forces me to buy something. It keeps me investing, right? And that, that's, for me, the weekly rhythm of it. Right. Right? Because I, I just do it on Wednesdays for a random reason. But like I buy on Wednesdays, so sometimes the market's up 10% or down 15% or whatever it is. And I, but I, I think what I learned that from being an investor in index funds for 20-plus years where I have no control over the day that my index right, fund you throw your money in the 401k and, and it comes out of your account and right. the asset managers do their thing and that's it you know i just get the statement later that says what day the transactions happened on but it's just that they don't look at the market it's just on a regular thing cash hits the account this day they buy this day and that's it um and it you know it's been it's worked you know i have more money now than i used to so um so yeah i think that this is a, i'm glad that we're talking through this because i it, it's like two different ways to kind of get to the same goal. Yeah, let's. Uh, there's a couple of things I wanted to talk about too that I, th- I think are important. And for me, one that I really wanted to stress is as, as, as human animals, like we are wired for confirmation bias, right? To look for things we're going to be right about, right? And when it comes to buying a stock, I don't care what the company is, it's easy as hell to find a reason why it's going to go up. It's so easy to, Right. For even the worst business in the world, you can come up with something. I mean, they've been able to raise capital. Obviously, they have reasons why the, the, the business will become more valuable over time. For me, one of the things that I've learned is I, I think it might even be more important to understand at, at least some basic level what could go wrong. Yeah, I think I think that is really important because you're right. You can... I think it goes both ways. Like I think you can talk yourself in or out of any stock if you really try to. So it it probably depends on where you 
where you are on that spectrum of like always looking for the reason it's going to go up or looking for the reason that it's going to go down. But I think most people, like you said, can find the reason it's going to go up. So I've heard it referred to as a pre-mortem, right, rather than a post-mortem. Just write down or think through like if this is the worst investment after whatever, a year from now, five years from now, what went wrong, right? And just sort of play out that scenario in your head. So we talked about having a framework, right? We talked about being able to write or know or just think through what could go wrong with a company. Are there any other things that you think investors absolutely need to think of when buying, deciding to buy, regardless of what sort of process they end up settling on that works for them? Yeah, it's, it's, this is, this is, it might seem obvious, but um, why, why are you buying it? Right? I think this is a good one to kind of um, finish up on. But what, what do I mean by why do you buy it? And I think this is where you can start to separate, like actually having like a good fundamental understanding of the business with your, like your, you've actually, uh, you understand what they do, their industry, the competition, the market opportunity, right? Where you can actually build that thesis, right? That, that here, here is what could go right yourself and, and you understand it um, v- versus FOMO, Right. I need to buy an oil stock because oil stocks are going up, right? Or I need to buy a lithium stock because, well, lithium-ion batteries, right? So, so those are FOMO examples, and they're bullshit examples. They're not, right? It's not a real reason. It's like an excuse to buy. It's an excuse to feed your FOMO, right? Um, and another one that I think is a valid reason, we talked about, like, wh- how to get ideas. A lot of people listen to this. You have jobs. You work 50 hours a week. You have kids that you like to spend time with, you have a spouse that wants you to cut the yard every once in a while, right? You, you have other obligations in your life and other passions and things you want to pursue. And maybe you're outsourcing some of that finding, vetting, and selecting of the stocks, and all you're doing is buying it. And maybe it's, maybe your reason is because I'm a member of some stock picking service, right? We don't need to name any. You guys know what they are out there. And they make their, they give you five or 10 stock picks a month you can choose from. And you, your process is you're going to buy at least half of them, right? So you're not going to cherry pick and just pick one or two and let all your built-in biases cause you to pick those. And then you get shitty results because you didn't really buy anything besides just making wild guesses, right? I think that's a valid reason why you're buying is because you're outsourcing that and you're paying somebody else to help you pick the stocks. I think that's totally valid, but I think it's really important to have a, why am I buying this? And I think it's important if you're going to go the route of sort of outsourcing the the research and the work, if, if you're a member of any sort of stock picking service that's worth anything, it should be more than just a ticker. It should be some sort of write-up that explains exactly what we're talking about. What does the company do? How does it make money? What are some drivers for its future success? And even what are some risks or things you're going to keep an eye on? And, you know, you read that. Maybe stock newsletters are not good places to find stock ideas, people. Let me say that. The best place is this podcast. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll state that right off the bat. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I would love to know for anyone listening who has like strong feelings about this one way or the other, or has more questions, like hit us up on any of the ways we mentioned, email us, uh, tweet at us, find YouTube comment, anything, because I guess said earlier, I, this is a, a, a subject I really was craving for information on when I was getting started. Cause I had that constant thought of like, what if my process is stupid? <laughs> so it is, Jeff, it, it is, is stupid. Yeah, no, I know. Um, but 
I want someone to tell me that. So honestly, if anyone's listening and thinks, man, Jeff's an idiot, that's the stupidest process I've ever heard. Please, please tell me. I, it, I would love, love that feedback. It's stupid for me. It's perfect for you. <laughs> right? And vice versa, you know? Right. Jeff, appreciate you doing this one with me. Yeah, man. It was great. You can do it, people. We believe you. The same investment advice, just rough suggestions from a couple guys of the podcast. We will see you next episode, episode three. We're going to talk about how you can track your investments after you've made them, how you can continue to learn about the companies, and how you can use that to help continuing to find your own individual investing success. So until then, we'll see you next time. See you next time.